1: From remote control and tough crowd, Colin
0: Quinn. When I tell you I had no idea what the show was until, like, the second season, I'm not exaggerating. I, mean, I just had a miserable attitude. We're doing this stupid Brady Bunch commercial. We're supposed to be doing, like, stand-up and talking about things. So I'm complaining to Kenny. And we're signing autographs after the show that night, and I was complaining. And this girl comes out, beautiful girl, just pulls her top down. She goes, will you sign my tits? I'm like, sure. I start signing. Kenny goes, hey, Spalding Gray, what was that you were saying before? What was bothering you? Anybody over 24 had no idea who we were. It was as much fun as it looked to people the time we had there, you know.
2: Hello, everyone, and welcome to BASIC, the official podcast of the unofficial history of cable TV. I'm Doug Herzog, a former TV executive, and today we come to you from 72 whooping cough Lane.
1: And I'm Jen Cheney, TV critic at Vulture and New York Magazine, and I am looking forward to my first snack break.
2: Yeah, Jen. Today, our guest is my old pal Colin Quinn, who was the co-host of the legendary MTV game show Remote Control, which was a huge hit on MTV at the time—one of their very first actual TV shows. Do you remember watching it back in the day?
1: I do remember watching it because all of my MTV access would happen when we were on vacation during the summer, and I remember whatever summer that was that Remote Control started just ingesting a lot of those episodes. I, I couldn't get enough of it. And as you all know, Colin later went on to be on Saturday Night Live, where he became a Weekend Update anchor before returning to cable and Comedy Central with his great topical panel show, Tough Crowd.
2: Colin is revered in the world of stand-up as the comics comic. He's one of the great comedic voices of this generation, at least I think. He's got a string of brilliant one-man shows to his credit. So let's get right into it with Colin.
1: And Doug and I will be back after the interview with Colin to discuss what we discussed.
2: Colin Quinn, welcome to Basic. Uh, We ask the same question of every guest when we start. You're old enough to actually answer this because a lot of of the younger guests go, they don't know the difference between Basic and anything else. Do you remember when you got cable television and do you remember what you were watching?
0: I remember when I was in high school out by Coney Island, there was a place called Hallway Terrace and it was only like, three little sections of Brooklyn that had cable. And my friends would tell me about this thing that had HBO. And that was like in the 70s. And I was like, what? And I just remember being like, okay, what are you talking about? It was so irritating to me. Even then I was irritated by anything I didn't understand. Yeah, I remember that was the first time I heard about cable. I didn't really understand the concept. It was just annoying to me. And I was like, the 70s. But I mean, no, I don't remember when I first got cable. I don't. I remember when MTV came on, though.
1: What do you remember about that?
0: I just remember all these musicians were like, this is going to kill music. Every It's only going to be people looking a certain way. And I was like, I couldn't wrap my head around it. I mean, they were right, of course, from their point of view. You'd have to have a style over substance, you know. But I didn't see it at the time.
1: When you were growing up, were you super interested in comedy as a kid? Like, when did you kind of get bitten by that bug?
0: I mean, I was always the funny person. I was always funny. I was funnier when I was 13. Everybody that grew up with me knows I, I peaked at 14. I did. <laughs> there wasn't like a comedy scene. I watched Richard Pryor, I watched George Collin, and David Brennan. I used to watch David Brennan go, how cool is this guy? He used to come out with this brown leather jacket with his open shirt, gold chains with like a shag haircut. He was like the Rod Stewart of comedy. I was like, this guy's <laughs> cool, man. I couldn't believe it.
2: I love that an Irish Catholic guy from Brooklyn loved a funny Jew from Philadelphia. Yeah, I know. I was
0: like, this guy's really something.
2: Mike Douglas show. Yes, he was always he was on Mike Douglas. Always on Mike Douglas, yeah.
0: Here's why Don Rickles is the funniest ever, because I remember him on Mike Douglas, and Mike Douglas asking him some question. You now, I was just randomly watching it at the time. It was like an afternoon show for people that don't know it. And so you would be a little more formal on the show like that. It was all soccer moms from those days. And he asked Don Rickles some question at the opening. Don Rickles goes, Mike, how do you have a show? You're so boring. <laughs> You're a boring <laughs> guy because Mike was so boring. He goes, Mike, you have no personality. How do you have a talk show? You used to be a band leader in the 40s or something. And he just started ripping into him. and It was so funny. Because it's the truth.
2: I worked for Mike Douglas early on my you career. And the, oh, yeah, At the end of his career, pre-MTV, and he was... Let's just say he wasn't the sharpest tool in the shed. He was a dumb guy, huh? I didn't say that.
1: (laughs) But it's what you meant.
2: (laughs) But but enough about a show that only we remember. I don't even know if Jen's old enough.
1: I remember it.
2: But wait,
0: you can't say someone's not the sharpest tool in the shed, which means dumb. And then when I go, so he's dumb, you go, (laughs) I didn't say that. (laughs) That's what that expression means.
2: But it's 2022. We have to protect ourselves here.
0: Oh, yeah. Too late.
2: Too late. Quinn, <laughs> let's jump ahead. So how did the remote control thing happen? How did you find your way onto MTV in the mid-'80s?
0: Well, you remember, it was 87. The beginning of 87 is when we shot it, you know? Or the end of 87. It was December 7, 1987. But I was doing stand-up at that point. There were only a few clubs. I don't know if it was
2: Doug or... or... Was, I think it was Dugan, right? Michael Dugan.
0: I think it was yeah. Dugan came up. He was, hey, we're doing this show... I was like, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I didn't really, I I didn't register anything. I don't know what was going on in my mind, you know. They brought me in to be the announcer for this show. And I was like, I should be the host. What are they making me an announcer for? And then me and Ted Demi did a run through. When I tell you, I had no idea what the show was until like the second season. I'm not exaggerating. (laughs) I swear to God, I just had a miserable attitude, but I was reading the copy. The ad copy was part of my job. But the only thing I knew about show business was that I had gotten paid like $2,000 to read for like a Burger King commercial. So every time I read that copy, I was pissed off because I'm like, I should be getting money for this. So I read it with such a bad attitude. And then Marisol started reading it the same way. And remember, the sponsors were like mad. But then all these kids that watched the show loved that thing. And people thought I was making fun of it when I would say Chrysalis instead of Chrysalis. (laughs) But I didn't understand it was chrysalis. I didn't know that's how you pronounce chrysalis. So I'm going chrysalis. And they're like, hey, he's mispronouncing. Remember, they used to yell at you guys like, they're mispronouncing our copy. (laughs) But I swear to God, I didn't even know. And I feel like me and Kenny having this kind of snotty attitude accidentally really worked, you know.
2: You did have a miserable attitude. I think that's actually pretty apt. And you were like really kind of semi-reluctant about the whole thing, even after it started. Yes. And your host, your co-host, Kenny Ober, the host of the show, <laughs> he took to it like a little more quickly than you did. I was wondering if you would share a story that I love about you and Kenny signing autographs at a promotional event. Oh, yeah. How did that go?
0: Well, I was saying, what are we doing? We're doing a stupid Brady Bunch commercial. We should be doing stand-up and talking about things. And we're doing a Brady Bunch because in comedy, Brady Bunch was kind of a hot subject by that point. That's why it was so offensive to me that we're doing the Brady Bunch, because in stand-up, people talking about the Brady Bunch were like, oh, God, that hack, like there were comedians that would get the audience to sing along to Brady Bunch songs. I didn't get the show at first. That's what I'm saying. I didn't understand that it wasn't a stand-up. It was funny because it was ironic. I didn't right. even get that. It. It was stupid. But then there's some complaints to Kenny. And then that night, we we're signing autographs after the show that night, and I was complaining, and this girl comes out, beautiful girl. And just pulls her top down and goes, will you sign my tits? And I'm like, sure. I start signing. Kenny goes, hey, Spaulding Gray, what was that you were saying before? was
1: <laughs> <is bothering> <laughs> Fair that enough. That is very funny. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, if you were out signing autographs, you must have had some sense that the show was being well-received. Did you start getting recognized on the street more and stuff?
0: No. What happened was, I think Kenny Oba went down for some college thing with the show, and he said, you should sing all these kids because we lived in new york city we didn't see that many college kids you know and he goes these kids go crazy they love the show i was like oh shut up they don't love the show you know what are you talking about nobody watched the show they watch mtv they watch videos and i watched some show then we went and did something where i had to do a gig i was petrified by the way at this i had to do a show a comedy show at a college in like it was in missouri he was getting off the plane dennis weaver drive that's why I know it was Missouri. <laughs> and I go there and they're driving me to the gym. The kids are driving me and they're a little nervous, you know, but I figure out they see a comedian, you know. It was like this big long line of 3000 people. I go, what's going on? They go, I go, what are they laughing at? You know, I don't get it. Some band is here. They were there for me. <laughs> I was petrified, but it was hard because I'm doing stand-up and it's like people brought their kids, there's all ages. So all I did was talk about MTV and then just signed autographs for like two hours, you know. I would say that show became, once we got into the most fun you could have, like it was as much fun as it looked to people, the time we had there, you know.
2: Yeah, you guys had a great time. You had a great cast and crew. You had a great time making the show.
0: And we had a great time hanging out with everybody.
2: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was the height of MTV. You guys were giant celebrities wherever you went.
0: Not wherever we went. Anybody over 24 had no idea who we were.
2: Right. Fun, you
0: know? <laughs> hanging out with you guys. It's the only time I tell people, the executives, there was no distinction. We all hung out together all the time. We did. We went to every party together. We were dancing. It was so different than most situations. It
2: was good times So talking about the people you worked with, we actually spoke to Dennis Leary recently. He talked a little bit about his early days on remote control, but there was a guy named Adam Sandler who was still a student <laughs> at NYU. Yeah. I know you're still close with Adam and have been for a long time, but you knew Adam from the clubs, right?
0: Yeah. I knew Adam when he first started. He used to bring his friends on stage that he still works with to this day, Hurley and those guys. And he'd bring them up and they were called the foreskins. And they would do like parodies of Duran Duran. and. <laughs> george michael and when i first saw adam he wasn't funny first few times i saw him, I go, this guy he was so he was young and he went on the road just goes to show the points of the road he came back six months of real road gigs and you saw it this guy's just funny he's got it you know what i mean but it took that that road work to really make him become himself
2: I could still do his early set. I could do the Will Chamberlain joke and the Elvis Presley in my refrigerator Uh, joke. But I do remember he would come out and do his characters early on. He was not immediately accepted, certainly by the crew, more by the fans. And sometimes you could just hear him bombing and there's crickets. And the only thing you can hear is you laughing.
0: How funny, because he was kind of like those characters was like Andy Kaufman type stuff. Like, they were so ironic.
2: Stud boy and dog Stud boy. boy and... Yeah.
0: <laughs> and bossy boy. They would take the thinnest premise. And bossy boy would just go on. So, but he would commit to it so hard. Like, bossy boy is just bossy. They go, hey, Ken, shut up, Kenny. Like, start yelling. they trying to boss Ken around.
2: Quinn's still the only guy cracking up.
0: It's really funny. <laughs> it's very ironic, those characters. Well, they were ahead of their time, you know.
1: I asked Dennis this question. I'm curious to hear your response. How much of what you were doing, were you kind of doing by the seat of your pants as opposed to like scripting the bits you were going to do?
0: No, we played around, but let me, once again, in hindsight, I look at that show and go, that show was so funny. And by the way, everybody told me, because I remember doing a show, I was complaining. Really, I was like the the worst employee for the first year. I was so disgruntled. Mm -hmm. And all my friends, my brother, everybody goes, the show's really funny. I was just blinded by this Brady Bunch thing. And by the way, I grew up watching the Brady Bunch. I'm sure I've told Doug this, but one of the most disillusioning moments of my time there was I was on set with Kenny. There's a whole crowd. We were in Orlando at the time, I think, and all these young kids are you. And Kenny goes, what did that last thing mean? I go, you know, from that Brady Bunch episode where Marsha, And he goes, I didn't watch the Brady Bunch. <laughs> Even I was like horrified, like, oh, Ken, you're the host of remote control.
2: do you have like a favorite remote control moment
0: just kenny's attitude i mean i always tell people you know when i run into people to bring it up kenny was so underrated as what he was doing he's running this show getting all the questions out but throwing away these remarks
2: that was so funny His wit was really sharp. He was incredibly fast. And I always thought Kenny was one of the funniest guys I ever met. And we know him, we love him, we miss him. But, you know, I always think about what could have been for Kenny had he still been around. He was
0: so quick. You're right. I knew him a little bit before we did the show. And he would just work the crowd. And it was so quick at working the crowd. It was almost to his detriment as a stand-up because he didn't have to write. He would just work the crowd and just be so transcended anything you see. Like, through my crowd work, guys, he was like a master of it. It was really, really amazing.
1: To what extent do you think that your work on, on remote control and some of these other things helped get you onto Saturday Night Live?
0: I think it had nothing to do with it. Really? I mean, well, yeah. Like, MTV at that time was just a separate reality. There was no connection between what networks were and what MTV. I remember some reporter telling me one time in Florida, when we're doing spring break, he goes, we bring all these cameras from NBC. These kids could kill less When they see the MTV camera, they worshipped it. It was really a different world. you know what I mean? Mm-hmm.
2: It's hard to explain to people if they aren't old enough to remember how how yeah. big a deal and how culturally significant it was.
0: And kids that watch MTV only watch MTV. They didn't watch anything else. I would be going on the road doing stand-up, and the language we spoke, like we'd be talking about, I don't know, David Cloverfield and 20 Kate. take. The audience knew
2: exactly what I meant. The references. People that
0: didn't had no idea. It was its own world, mm-hmm. MTV. Yeah.
2: So going back to Jen's SNL thing, how did that all happen? What got you into the anchor seat?
0: I got hired as a writer. And the reason I say MTV had nothing to do with it, because Lorne used to make these little remarks to me and Beth McCarthy. And uh, I know you people think this MTV thing. He was being sort of joking, but he's like, MTV, yes, it's your own world. We get ben it. Beth
2: McCarthy, by the way, was a longtime director of Saturday Night Live who came from MTV, like when did.
0: That's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So SNL happened. When I was just Fred Wolf was the writer there, the head writer. And he said, see Colin Quinn, you're hiring new people. So I get hired as a writer. And because I bombed at the audition, they put me on, on a night of 15 year old camp kids. <laughs> now, if it had been 15 year old camp kids, Five years earlier, I would have killed. They would all watch remote control. The remote control was off. Right. This was 1994. I got hired as a writer there, and then once I was there, you know, they just started using me in different stuff. You know,
2: Was that like a big moment for you? I mean, besides getting into that great gig, which is just one of the great showbiz gigs of all time, I think probably, but then you started really doubling down on like timely, topical humor, right?
0: It was a blessing and a curse because it happened with the norm thing so it took me years to realize that I couldn't enjoy it because I was so not used to being the guy that bringing in. Like suddenly, I'm like the respectable one. So I kind of sabotaged it even more than my usual level of sabotage, which is, you know, <laughs> impressive to begin with.
1: When you say you sabotaged it, what did what did you do?
0: Well, all you do is watch any episode, and you'll see what I did. I would just <laughs> sneer at any joke. I would look at the audience and mutter. I mean, I do do that in stand up, but not to that degree. I wouldn't smile. I thought that was just your thing. Yeah, at the time I mean, that, it was and it wasn't. Yeah,
2: Quinn was not exactly Elvis Costello not playing the song he was supposed to play, but it was in that spirit.
0: Yes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, perfect. It was that Ben Morrison, Elvis Costello. We see the pattern: the Irish people and <laughs> disgruntled people. So I, that was basically what was happening there. So, so yes. On the one hand, it's this great opportunity but on the other hand it came with so much ambivalence with norm and i just kept holding on to it and lauren michaels even told me after a few shows like okay you can stop apologizing or whatever now just do it but i didn't understand that you know what i mean
1: so did you ever have any fun doing the anchor stuff or was it always that you know no i had
0: fun the first two and a half years on snl i had the greatest experience of my life doing little characters writing stuff I loved it, Mm -hmm. but doing the update was not a good time for me. But like I said, that first two and a half years, thank God I had those because that was so much
2: fun. Being in New York, it was like a dream. Mm -hmm. It was great. What about Tough Crowd? Tell us about the origin of Tough Crowd and getting that on the air.
0: After I left SNL, we did this 9-11 benefit at Carnegie Hall, and Tina Fey and Mike Shoemaker were there from SNL, and they said, oh, my God, you got to do a topical thing that was so funny, whatever, you know. So then we did three episodes on NBC, but NBC didn't pick it up. One thing me and Kenny had in common, we're very difficult. So NBC is like, we want names of people that are going to be on. I was like, there are no names. So it turned into this whole drama. This was one of the most, oh, God. it was. I think back now, it's like, it's the opposite of playing politics, you know. But like I said, you guys spoiled us at MTV where everybody felt free to say whatever they wanted. Right, right. So we didn't see a power structure. We just saw, we talk, everybody talks the way they want to talk.
2: I forgot about the NBC version.
0: Yeah, so the NBC thing, they didn't pick it up. And then Lauren called and said, you want to do it as a daily thing on Comedy Central. Mm-hmm. Tell about like how you saw the show and, and what it became. Here's how I saw the show. Everybody always says, oh, we're sick of fake showbiz stuff. Everybody tries so hard to be liked and to say the right things. What about if comedians are so funny, let them be funny off the cuff for real, not preparing. Let's see how funny they are. So I was like, all right, we'll do that. That's what I wanted to do anyway. You know, I was like, let's see how it looks when it's just people around the table, just working off the cuff. So that was the premise of this show was don't really prepare. You can, you know, you get notes, you can play around a couple hours before, but off the cuff. And Scott Preston, by the way, one of the most underrated directing jobs on Tough Crowd. For him to cut and catch all these different people was pretty amazing, you know what I mean?
1: Did the guests know what topics you were going to cover before a show?
0: Yeah, a couple of hours before. It was just supposed to be like, I would write my own monologue every night, like I would let anyone, so it would be spontaneous, you know? So everything was supposed to be kind of like, you're doing your own thing, and we don't want people to prepare too much. Like if somebody said something positive, like, I think this would all go, yay, the audience likes you. Like, we invented Attacking Clapter, I believe, because we're like, oh, (laughs) you're a good person. You're not just a comedian. So it was really about trying to have people be as real as they wanted without worrying about Mm -hmm. trying to be old school. I thought people would like that.
2: And that's tough every night with four guests to develop a little bit of chemistry. But you did have a great group of performers who were on on a pretty regular basis that were sort of awesome and really tailor-made for what you're trying to do, right?
0: Yeah, they they really was. There was never a pregnant pause because Patrice would fill it in. So (laughs) Patrice would get 15 out of every 18 minutes of show would be him.
1: Was there ever a subject that you thought about discussing and you thought, you know what, this is going to be too touchy? It doesn't seem like that ever crossed your mind, but did it? No,
0: no, Yeah, it was insane, especially in the lens of today's society. It was like being in in an insane asylum when you look back now. But at the time, no, that was the whole thing was like, we didn't care. You know what I mean? We just felt like, try to make it funny and, you know, whatever it is. I mean, I feel like we didn't go out of our way. Maybe some people went out of their way to try to be offensive, but it's just, you know, it's people trying to be funny and trying to find angles on stuff.
2: So what about today? Could you do the tough crowd show that you were doing back then today
1: i <laughs> <you> think that <laughs> have you watched clips from it lately
2: yeah. <laughs> I guess he hasn't you can't have watched the YouTube clips if he's asking me a question doug I know the show very well but I wanna I want to set this up for the audience I mean so that's like an impossible show to do in 2022 right <laughs> I
0: mean, it was impossible then I mean <laughs> so I mean yeah of course of course of course every line is impossible <laughs>
1: Yeah. I mean, I was watching a couple episodes and you were using words to describe mentally challenged people that that alone would have never flown. Oh, yeah. But it was a different time, as they say. It was a
2: different time. So given that it's a different time, what hasn't changed is you've always been getting up in front of an audience. Yeah. So how has what's going on in the culture changed that part of what you do, which is get up and and tell stories and jokes for an audience? Or has it? I don't know if it has. I mean...
0: I mean, you've seen them, so you tell me, because I feel like it hasn't changed. You you find ways to try to explain to people why today's culture is not evolved necessarily any more than any other time in history is evolved. You know what I mean? It just feels different. So people like to think they're evolving. Are they evolving? In some ways, yes. In some ways, they're regressing. So, mm-hmm. I mean, it's more like, Trying to elicit laughs is the bottom line. So like anytime it gets preachy and it's not getting a laugh within 30, 40 seconds, then I start getting like, no, this is not what I like to do for a living. I'm supposed to be a comedian. So if you advertise yourself as a comedian, this is my opinion, you're supposed to be getting laughs your whole show. People don't hire babysitters, spend their night out to get scolded by like 28-year-olds. So if you can find a way to say what you want to say and still be funny, great. But that's what I would say. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's ultimately got to be funny. Mm-hmm.
1: You're on social media as well. How has that or or has it shaped your approach to comedy? I mean, do you feel like you're ever trying out material on there to some extent or getting ideas from it?
0: No, it's infused in my body like everybody else. I mean, of course, mm-hmm. it's more of our culture than music or TV or anything. It's like, it is our culture. So I mean, it must affect me all the time, you know. But I mean, the ideas are just like. Just watching people get more and more transformed by it into these alter ego type avatar. Like, I feel like people have become like avatars.
2: But your Twitter is like kind of a bit, right? You have like a Twitter persona. Is that fair?
0: I mean, yeah. A positive person trying to make his way through this world, yes. <laughs> <laughs>
2: That's exactly how I describe it.
0: Yeah. I'm like a male Sakamon. <laughs>
2: So you have been doing over the last several years a series of one man shows, which, by the way, I would recommend several of them are on streaming platforms is a a great book. Um, I'd also recommend seeing Colin whenever he comes to your town. But talk about the one man shows and why you started doing them and how they've now really become like your perfect format, it feels like.
0: Yeah, I love doing them. Thanks, because I feel like you can really talk about all these Issues but still try to get laughs, but not have to do stuff that I don't even like doing. You know what I mean? Like I just I never did a lot of dick jokes, which is crazy because dick jokes were so big. I remember when I was on MGB, we'd go on the road and I could tell the crowd wanted me to kind of be dirtier. But I always mm. like to this boring shit. It's just how I am, you know, it's just my areas of interest. So I mean I love doing it now because people have come to expect it when they come to the show. They're like, oh, he's going to talk about this. So it just changes the mindset. I definitely feel more comfortable on stage in the past 10, 12 years than I did my whole comedy career. Like, this is where what I'm supposed to be talking about. I don't like just doing random stand-up sets where you shift subjects and talk about – I like doing it like
2: this, you know? Like the thematic, mm-hmm. bigger, bigger idea.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I'm obsessed with the MTV days because it was, I feel like it was such a happy time.
2: When you were on remote control.
0: But remember, the comedians, it was Dice, it was Sam Kennison. Mm -hmm. These are the big comedians. Roseanne. I remember doing these, like, MTV things with all these people that were, like, big comedians back then and just watching them and going, my God. Like, it was just, there was something very colorful about it,
2: you Mm -hmm. know? It's interesting, though. All those comedians were very over the top.
0: Very strong personalities.
2: Then there was like Bobcat, who was like a strong personality. And then even like on a lower level, it was like Gilbert, who was always screaming. God bless his soul. (laughs) Love him. Judy Tenuta. Judy uh, Tenuta. (laughs) Emo Phillips. Yes. They were all like quirky comedians. And that's kind of the way we would gravitate on MTV a little bit.
1: But then you had someone like Stephen Wright, who was like the absolute opposite of screaming, who I thought was so brilliant.
2: But never on MTV. No. Yeah, he's, no. He was too smart and low-key, I think.
1: Steve Wright was, pound for pound, has never
0: been a better joke writer in comedy. I mean, this guy was a monster. I yeah. mean, his jokes were like, what? What? <laughs> how, did, how could you have a full hour that's that quality? It was ridiculous, you know? But he was
2: amazing, yeah. Shout out to Emerson College again. We talked a little bit about him yeah. with Dennis. Because we were. Oh, you know, you we did, yeah. To, yeah, we went to college with him, and he... I remember when he started doing stand-up, people would be like, you got to go see Steven Wright. And, and I'd be like, wait, are you kidding me? Like that that spaced out, stoned out guy? They're like, yeah, yeah, that's, that's the act. It's hilarious. But it's no <laughs> act. That's him. Right, right, right. Yeah. How about the time he moved in my
0: building when I lived on 56th Street? And it was like 10 years ago. He goes, yeah, I don't know many people here. I was like, oh, I'll be in touch. I said, you know what? I should go down and knock on his door just because, you know, maybe he felt like I was blowing him off. So I went down. I knocked on his door. He opens the door. He goes, "Yeah," and I go, "I just wanted to wait a minute. I, is this like a not a good time?" He goes, "No, it's not."
2: And shut the door in my face. <laughs> I go, "That's it.
0: I'm never calling him."
2: That's very Stephen Wright. I'll say that. Yeah. yeah.
1: I wanted to ask you. You know, you were in a few years ago. You were in Trainwreck with uh, with Amy Schumer, and I'm just wondering with that and what you were talking about with your one man shows, like. Do you have any interest in doing any kind of dramatic stuff, like dramatic acting, or not at all? You just... You did not Girls, too. You
2: did a bunch of episodes
1: of Girls, Oh, yeah, that's right? right.
0: Girls, yeah. I have no interest in, in any acting. I just, I just I don't love doing it, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I love... My idea of fun, dramatic acting was when I did Cop Show. That's my idea <laughs> of fun
2: acting. And by the way, if you haven't seen Cop Show, it's online, right? It's on YouTube? Yeah. Yeah, you should go check it out. It's, it's Quinn at his... Very best in a in a cop show parody. Speaking <laughs> of uh, other TV shows, we, we we always finish up by asking our guests outside the shows you've been on. What is your all time favorite basic cable show?
0: Wow! Oh, I mean, I did love these. The most recent ones, Amy Schumer's sketch show on mm-hmm. Comedy Central was, was brilliant, and it was so funny, but it was also different you know what i mean look comedy center had a bunch of great sketch shows really
2: if you look back on it. i i've talked to amy about this she really sees you as a big inspiration and a mentor oh. and you and you are known i you know and i know you know this in the comedy circles as the comics comic yeah how do you feel about having that place as like the dean i like it i like it do you? <laughs> i wish it paid more but academia doesn't really pay that well <laughs> Well, Quinn, we really appreciate you being here. I know Jen does, too. We are longtime fans. Thanks. No. Going back to the early days. And again, if Colin Quinn comes to your town, go check him out. Go check out his cop show. And again, thanks for being here. We appreciate it.
0: Thanks. Bye, Jen. I love you, Doug.
2: So Colin Quinn, old colleague and longtime friend. And, you know, I think it's probably no secret if you listen to this, what a big fan I am. And I, you know, I think the interesting thing about Colin, you know, he talked about kind of railing against certain types of opportunities and jobs and things he didn't like to do. And it occurred to me that if he wanted, I think he could have had a much sort of different career and maybe a slightly more lucrative career. But he never really wanted to do anything that he couldn't get behind a hundred percent.
1: And I respect that. I do too. What he was saying about initially being on remote control and not really wanting to be there and not understanding what the show was, just sort of his disdain for it was almost what was great about (laughs) about how he was on the show. Because by the late 80s, I mean, MTV felt a little bit more establishment than it did when it first started. And so even though it was such an arbiter for youth culture, there was also the sense of like, you're kind of working for the man. So by being on it, but also acting like he hated it, he was really like capturing a generation that understood that vibe.
2: And as he said, I think in the beginning, he really hated it. Like, I kind of remember that. He was like a little disgruntled. I remember giving the show shit because he would do those reads for the ads and you kind of couldn't understand them. But over time, like everything else, if something's a success, people just buy in and the advertisers, they wanted him to read the ads because they wanted him to mangle it because everybody thought it was funny.
1: Right, And you remember that more. Yeah. The unusual way that he would do it than just a standard, you know, typical game show host read of an ad.
2: Right. And and that's just him sticking to his guns, right? And making it work and everybody finally catching on and, and following along. So, mm-hmm. you know, good for Colin Quinn.
1: And good to hear him say, you know, at the end of our conversation that he's enjoying doing these one-man shows so much and that it feels like that's his like comfortable space where he feels like he can do his best work. To get to that point, whenever it happens, it has got to be a really gratifying feeling. I haven't gotten there yet, so I don't know. Maybe I never will. But it was nice to hear him say that.
2: Well, and he found that much later in his career. I mean, this is, you know, the last... He started doing them early on, but it's it's really become a thing over the last 10 years. And it feels like every two and a half years, he has like a new one-man show. And, he you know, he'll do it in New York for a couple of weeks, and then he'll tour it a little bit. And, I, I, and you can find some of them on Netflix and some of the other streamers. And they're really great to see if you like that kind of comedy. It's really, really smart and funny stuff.
1: Mm -hmm. And I do wish he would do more acting. You know, he he doesn't seem too interested, but I I thought he was really good in Trainwreck and I liked him on Girls, which he reminded me of. So maybe he'll change his mind about that. We'll see. Yeah, I'm not sure that one's going to happen, but
2: (laughs) the only guy that could really get him into this is Sandler, I think, twists his arm every once in a while to be in one of Mm -hmm. his movies. So We're big fans of Colin. Hope you are too, and maybe you're a new fan. Appreciate you coming along with us today and look forward to seeing you back here on the next BASIC. BASIC is a Pantheon Media production in partnership with Sirius XM. Hosted by Jen Chaney
1: and Doug Herzog. Produced by Christian Swain and Peter Ferrioli.
2: Lindley Ehrlich is our assistant producer.
1: Mixed, mastered, and music by Jerry Danielson.
2: Edited by Zach Spisner.
1: You can find BASIC on Apple Podcasts, the Sirius XM app, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. If you like the show, please rate, review, and share so other people can find us. Don't forget to follow the show so you never miss an episode.
0: It's NFL draft season,
3: and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football